Welcome to episode one of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington, or Remy for short. Say hi, Remy. Hey, guys. All right. So to begin with, what is Wi-Fi Pioneer? A lot of people since the pandemic have been getting into work from home and other Wi-Fi type businesses, Wi-Fi just being any internet based business and it's becoming more prevalent and more necessary going forward. Um, so real quick, uh, Remy and I have been talking probably for the last two years, mostly through text message, occasional phone calls, bouncing ideas off of each other constantly. And what we found is more often than not, we're, having unique takes that we're not seeing on the rest of social media and other podcasts. Uh, not so, not so unique that other people don't eventually get there, but sometimes we're ahead of certain curves or just having unique takes uh, enough so that we felt it justified finally having our own podcast and putting it out there for an audience to challenge us on our, our ideas and just kind of share what, share with us what, what, what's going on. So with that, Today, we're going to talk a little bit about what exactly Wi-Fi jobs are, what, why they're so important, and kind of the scalability of them and what makes them so relevant. Um, so before we start, my background, for as much as I'll say uh, in a non-format, is involves military, law enforcement, and several in, in real-life brick-and-mortar businesses, as well as a couple, um, right now, a couple uh, Wi-Fi in, uh, income streams, uh, online businesses. Remy, if you'd like to kind of give a little bit of your background. Yeah, I come from uh, corporate finance and technology and industry. Okay, um, which is going to be very relevant going into many of our, our podcasts. So we're sticking with it a non-format or anonymous format because everybody by now knows what the words cancel culture mean and doxing and how a lot of people have, have their lives flipped over with that and for as much as we want to share and share our uh, experience and show you how credible we are, a lot of people, not just ourselves, stand to lose money and have their businesses and lives affected if we get doxxed. So even at the very beginning of this, when we have a very small audience, as it grows, it becomes more important for us to stay anonymous. And that's going to be a, a trend going into the 2020s and 2030s, where really you just want to protect your real life from your internet life. And we're going to talk about different ways to protect that and, you know, make money off of that as well. And just how to have multiple income streams that don't interfere with one another. So that should cancel culture mob come after you for nonsense reasons, only one revenue stream is affected versus all of your revenue streams and your friends and family. So um, with that, let's uh, kind of jump into some different Wi-Fi stuff. Um, we were talking about this before we got the podcast going or before we hit record today, difference between what, what amounts to Wi-Fi waiver versus scalable income. Uh, some of those things, if you guys aren't familiar with Fiverr, you can go to Fiverr.com and it's kind of like a Wi-Fi uh, freelance or, or uh, freelancer place. So if you're really good with something like Photoshop, you can put it out there that you will do Photoshop for people. If you're good with uh, editing, say editing um, books or uh, editing manuscripts, People, you set your price and people pay you to do that. And that's, I call it Wi-Fi labor because it's not a scalable thing, but if you need some, some side money real fast, you can set up a business where people come to you for any number of things. So uh, I keep, uh, 
editing books is a really good one. If you're fast, if you're a fast reader and really good grammatically, you can name your price if that amounts to twenty to fifty dollars an hour to go over people's books or manuscripts and make that money. Um, it's not scalable, but it is very relevant and particularly important. Just for giving you real negotiating leverage in your real life, uh, for example. If you if you haven't been able to depart the uh, you know the in real life job yet, and they still control your your lifestyle in terms of your income and and uh, your daily schedule, having that ability to totally depart from the that system if it's not treating you right and jump into the Wi-Fi world at least as a as a, a an easy step to bigger income in the Wi-Fi world really important thing to have in your pocket. Yeah. And- Again, if you if you've never started with this, it's a great you you're not going to be able like like any business. Nobody knows your name. You have no reputation. You have no reviews. So you're going to start off at the bottom end of the income pool, and that's that's perfectly acceptable getting started because you're building something bigger. Um, when it comes to scalability, like say you write a book, you only have to write the book once, then you just have to sell it over and over again. Um, and there, there's a big movement of independent authors now. Um, so the Amazon Kindle program has, I think it pays out 40 to $50 million a month to independent authors. Now, the ones who are actually making money are still the top 1% of authors. But if you have a book that's worth reading, all you have to do is market after that. Um, I say all you have to do. It's quite a lot of work. But point is, compared to traditional publishing and print media, there's a lot more people making money, making a living off of writing books than there are in print media. You know, you got a couple hundred authors a year making a living wage versus, you know, a couple thousand or tens of thousands making a living wage. So that's a more scalable income. You write a book, you just keep selling it and you don't have to do the labor again versus if you're uh, editing a book for somebody, you get paid per book. Um, and that's just one idea. One, one example of scalable income. This is a, this comment's going to be really obvious to, you know, a lot of people who are already into the Wi-Fi world and such or started their own business, but it's still worth saying that even if you have to take a significant step back in income, just departing the system where you are dependent on somebody else for a paycheck is well worth it and incredibly valuable long-term. The compounding effects are enormous because even if you are making three, $400,000 a year on somebody else's industry and somebody else's business, they get to tell you what to do. They're your boss. They control a lot more than just your paycheck uh, if you actually think about it. And so a lot of people are just totally dependent and addicted to a regular paycheck that somebody else provides and can yank from them at any time. Really important to exit that dynamic so you have more personal sovereignty as a first step. Yeah, and should have said this at the beginning. Uh, we're going to talk about personal sovereignty and self-sovereignty a lot throughout this podcast, um, not just this episode, but it's going to be a kind of a theme of um, individual responsibilities, individual success comes with sovereignty. And, but you talked to the importance of getting into getting control of your own, your own income and not working for somebody else. A lot of people are just meant to be an employee. They don't have, they can't handle the stresses or simply just can't handle. um, That's really what it comes down to the stress and responsibility of making your own money. Cause when you're your own business, when you are your own business, you are responsible for your success and your failure. There's no one else to blame. So a lot of people are very content to just let somebody else pay them an hourly wage. And you know, that's fine because 
if you're the type who's going to run a business, you need people to work for you. But once you work for yourself, you kind of never go back. Uh, at this point, I am unemployable because I've worked for myself for too long. I just couldn't work for somebody else. I, I, if any one of my current revenue streams or if all of them failed, I would just have to start up a new one because that's that's what happens when you work for yourself long enough. And you'll, you'll come to find that you can transfer skills into different industries lot easier than you realize and start making another revenue stream a lot easier than you realize when, when you have to. <laughs> you brought up an interesting point is as you're, as you're building your own businesses, you need to get really good at vetting people, uh, really good at understanding you know, who'd be a good employee. Obviously there are some people who are just meant to be employees, but as a first cut, one of the first things I look for is, are they unemployable? If so, that might be a great business partner. That may be a person who can make business deals. You know, that's somebody you deal with business to business. Um, because that person, that person has already gone through the ringer. They've already made the transition and they are, are completely free on their own and willing to accept the responsibility uh, that goes with it. Uh, and so it's just a really great um, proxy to use uh, when you're evaluating the potential of other people around you. They're employees and there are owners and you're one or the other typically. Yeah. And that's, Let's see. So are you familiar with the rule of three or the multiplier of three when uh, uh, establishing wages and what it costs to have somebody? Um, so essentially, I'm running a business. Uh, let's say I'm doing a service-based business and I'm charging $100 an hour for my service. I'll do that to keep the numbers even. Um, doesn't mean if I hire somebody that they're going to make me $100 an hour. If I'm if I'm paying somebody, say, $20 an hour as an employee, between payroll taxes and insurances and other things, essentially, they need to make $40 an hour just to break even. So to make money off of them, I got to charge $60 an hour, or they need to make me $60 an hour so that they pay their $20 an hour wage, they pay their $20 of an hour of taxes and insurances, and then the, the third set of $20, that's the actual profit. So the flip side of that is if you're an employee and you're good at your job, you're making one third of what you're worth. If you're bad at your job, you might actually, the numbers actually work out better because you're bad and you're kind of leeching off of other people's success. But if you're good at your job, you're being paid one third of what you're worth. So that, that should be your first indicator that you need to start your own business. Because if you're doing really well and you're making your boss a lot of money, you could be making yourself three times that money. That, that's <laughs> your those... first motivator. Yeah. And if you work in smaller companies, that number goes up drastically in terms of the differential between a great employee and just another employee. Uh, I've seen yeah. quite a bit of situations where, you know, the first few hires at a company are going to be, those people earn the company 40 times their salary. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, this is a rule of thumb, right? This is just a rule of thumb because mm -hmm. it, as you know, if you're an uh, if you're the boss, if you're the employer and you're about to hire your first person, understand that if you're charging $100 an hour for your labor, you're not going to hire another person to make another $100 an hour. You're going to make, you know, one third, whatever you're paying them, you're going to, you got to do that math of the one third rule to kind of get an idea of what you're going to make off of them. So if you're going to charge $50 an hour for their labor to the customer, you're going to make $15 an hour yourself profit after they're done. You're done paying your employee and paying for any of their supplies and mistakes and stuff. So it helps you understand the scalability when you're starting to 
take on new employees of what you can expect to make. And it also lets you know if they're underperforming or overperforming. You you hire somebody at $20 an hour and they're they're working so fast that you're actually making 50, 80 bucks an hour off of their labor. Well, one, it's time to give them a raise and possibly some kind of commission-based system so that they don't leave on you. But also to understand you got a valuable employee versus you you hire somebody at 20 bucks an hour and they're costing you $20 an hour because they're breaking stuff all the time. You, it gives you a baseline to do the math, to understand, like, is this person a valuable employee or not? Definitely. And, and you can even go one step deeper when you're thinking about where to get your first customers. Because if you think about the actual value that you're bringing and the value that any of your employees are bringing and what the price of that is, and consider what a you know, customer of a, of a major corporation is, is getting for that price, or say a customer of a of some sort of franchise, think about the employees that that franchise or that major business is employed and what the level of service that they're providing. I, the differential is enormous, right? You're going to be, yeah. you can directly steal customers right, right off the bat simply because you're providing real service and you don't have all this ridiculous overhead. And you're probably bringing to the table employees that are quite a bit more valuable um, for, you know, a rep roughly the same price. And so you can just take that market share right away. It's just right there for the taking. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to talk about with this, um, we're kind of, kind of talking about general things here and in, in later episodes, we'll get into more details on some of these topics. Cause we're, again, we're kind of caught casting a big net on the first episode, but, uh, trust, trust of business and partners and employees. Um, most people start out as a single person, uh, business and either later they they merge up and get a business partner or they try to bring the employees up to the manager level and um you know expand and what happens you, you see this a lot with business owners who they wind up scaling down because they get ripped off by employees or the employees wind up costing them too much money or they have a bad experience with a manager and they just they come to the conclusion that you can't trust employees ever therefore uh, i'll just be a one man or one woman show um so kind of, you got to put it out there. When you grow to the point that you're hiring people, some people are really good and some people are just aren't. Um, it's almost an advantage to get burned early on so that you start to develop a, a sense of who is a good employee and who's not and who's a good business partner and not. Uh, the lesson isn't to, to never trust. The lesson is to trust cautiously. And when you get burned, recognize it for what it is. Um, you know, a lot of people will get into these, like they'll go into a franchise and say, well, I'm just going to hire a manager and let them uh, run things for me. And I'll just, I'll just be the owner. Well, that's great until your manager develops a cocaine habit and starts beating other employees when you're not around. Uh, ask me how I know. And then all of a sudden you, you think, well, clearly the answer is I can't ever have a manager. Well, no, the answer is you need to run your business, learn your business, train a manager, get to know them and then give them more authority as they prove themselves. The idea that you're just going to start a business and dump it on somebody else to run, you get what you deserve. And usually you get taken when you, when you go with that model. Yeah. So purposely give people the opportunity to burn you when the stakes are low. So you can rapidly and cheaply filter that, uh, that employee set or that, uh, uh partner set, right? Yeah. You know, cause you're going to get burned at some point. You're going to, I mean, everybody's already done business with somebody as a customer and gotten burned and you stop working with those companies and you start to recognize what a, a scam company looks like and you avoid it. You know, it's not, 
it's bad, right? You you get betrayed, you lose trust, you lose money, but it's something you can recover from if it's, if the stakes are low enough, even when the stakes are high, given enough time, you recover from it. But the idea that once you get burned, you can never trust again, or you see somebody else's horror story and you say, well, I'll just always be a one man or one woman show. You severely limit yourself and limit your potential growth. So learn to trust and learn to continue to trust after you get betrayed. It's going to happen. Are there any specific criteria you use on the front end to, to just get a first cut so that you're not, you know, getting 90% trash in, in that filter? A lot of that can be, well, so going, switching away from the in real life to the Wi-Fi world, this is, this is a, we're going to a model system that I like and it, it self filters a lot. So in my Wi-Fi businesses, I don't have any employees. I have about five different independent contractors that are their own business, essentially. So I pay somebody for my editing. Um, I pay somebody for any website design, Photoshop work, things of that. Now, these are all skills I have on my own. And to develop my business, I had to have those. But now I can pay somebody who's better at it and save myself the time. Uh, A lot of virtual assistants are coming out, right? It's an online assistant and you pay them um, to do go through emails and stuff for you like that. Well, what I like is that I can go on Fiverr or another website and pick somebody who has good reviews and say, Hey, I I need you for this job. And if they fail, well, I'm out, you know, I'm out some money, maybe a hundred, a couple hundred dollars, depending on the project, but I can just go to the next person. And as they prove themselves as a business, even though it's just a person, they're proving themselves as a business. I continue to use them and I give them bigger and bigger projects. And the same model works in real life. You hire an employee, you tell like everybody's been on a job where they're hired at say $10 an hour. And they tell you, well, in 90 days, your pay goes up to 12 or $15 an hour. What they're doing is giving you enough time to show your true colors. If you're still a good employee in 90 days, they'll, they'll give you a pay raise. Um, and actually Walmart is notorious for this as Walmart cannot keep employees on there, uh, on their payroll. But if you come in on time and clean clothes, you will get the job. For the, it doesn't matter what you're interviewing for. You just show up to your interview on time and clean clothes. This is how low the competition is. You'll get the job, and it'll be a minimum wage job. In 90 days, you're going to be an assistant manager of whatever department you're in if you still continue to show up on time and do your job. Uh, within a year, they'll actually pay uh, for your college depending on uh, – you know it's a limited program. But if you just show up every day on time, Within a year, you'll be a manager and you, of, your, of a department, and you will be getting a. They'll be paying for your college, so an incentive structure like that. Now, obviously, you're not going to be able to do that as a, a small business, but it's the same concept. You you hire people in, and you tell them after this many days, you get this. You get after this many days, you get a, a pay raise. Um, give them the opportunity to work overtime and see if they they produce in the overtime. You just give them more opportunities as they prove themselves and. Typically, you'll wind up finding out who's going to be a good employee and who's just going to be a worker drone. Because um, sometimes you give people opportunities and they're just like, no, thanks, I'd rather go home. You will find employees who know to the hour how much, how long they have to work in order to pay their bills for the week. And they won't work an hour more. And, you know, those people just don't get better opportunities because they're not, they're never going to produce for you. Whereas other people, you give them a chance to work overtime and they'll work every hour of it and uh, they'll produce. Yeah. So um, really pay attention to self-selection mechanisms and um, what 
uh, a term of art people like to use of adverse selection, which means uh, there's something there's something in the process where uh, people have made a choice that indicates, or at least means that if they're staying in that environment, they've definitely chosen something that means they're mediocre in some way. Uh, for example, government, let's just say it, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. And, uh, and so, I mean, that is a first cut. And if you just take a few moments to make some observations about the decisions participants are making in any particular environment, you'll see these dynamics jump out right away. And uh, that's just a great spot to step away. That doesn't mean that everybody in that environment is worth avoiding. It just means your, you know, your hit rate's going to be really low. And you have to have some other filter in place to make it worth your while uh, to, to sort through that data set to look for, you know, potential people to do things with. But uh, um, I, I also have a side point kind of in the, in the brick and mortar real world side, which is it always amazed me how many employers I saw wouldn't rapidly promote and compensate new hires who massively stood out from their peers. Uh, it just, yeah. it, so these, they just created this revolving door of entry, lo, entry level employees as a commodity, which you understand it's like, okay, maybe if, if it's McDonald's, you get it, but it even big, big name talent based organizations would do the same thing. And it just blew me away. I mean, this is your competition. They're doing such terrible business, make such terrible decisions that you can just steal their market share. Oh yeah. And Look, I saw this uh, a lot when I was in the military is um, kind of came up with the phrase that if you work hard, you will always be rewarded with more hard work. And if you are a shitbag, you'll be rewarded with nothing, um, meaning that you'll never be asked to do any work. So you see, and, and this works in the corporate world too, but you know, in the military, we'd see the same shitbags would just skate out of work. They do half-assed jobs and nobody would ask them to do anything. Whereas the people who are the first ones to raise their hand and volunteer to go do work, they'd get assigned all the work all the time because they were reliable. Well, this inverse uh, reward structure would mean that when enlistment time was up or in the case of some of the officers that were competent, when their term of service was up, they were gone and they'd move on with life. And the smartest officers I know never made it past the rank of captain because they would get out and that's about the time that they would have to renew their service. They get to the rank of captain and then they would be gone and they either start their own business or they go work for some corporation and they're, they're making double, triple, quadruple the money they would make if they stayed in, in the military. Whereas um, the mediocre officers and the mediocre uh, um, specialists and sergeants and, and whatnot, they would just get promoted every couple of years because they didn't, they didn't screw up to be not promoted they just they just flip to the top because there's nobody all the people above them left so their mediocrity actually makes them the the best performer who's still around and that's why you wind up with these majors and colonels and eventually generals who are completely mediocre um, they're not capable of independent thought and they're basically just yes men who exist in the military structure and just get by and you can see the current state of the military now. You have no talented officers um, in the rank of colonel or general. None. All you have is mediocrity with brass, you know, high brass and a high pay grade, and they just exist. And it's the same thing in the corporate world um, and a lot of these other businesses where the good people recognize, finally recognize their talent and they leave and either start their own business or go where they're wanted. And what you have left is the mediocre rising to the top, and mediocre people can't run an effective structure. They can just ride on the backs of the smart people until the system breaks down. <laughs> How often did you see a situation where, you know, let's say you've got a cohort of hires 
uh, all kind of shoulder, shoulder, neck and neck kind of. And, uh, and there'd be, I don't know, half of them who just weren't anything impressive or would do something really, really dumb to where you're like, well, we can't really give them any real responsibility. So their, their career is pretty much sidelined now. Like they're just going to be also rands or, or just taking up space. But then all the talent leaves. Those guys are the only ones left. And now, and now the bosses are in the position of having to eat their own words and be like, Oh, well, so and so is in charge, in charge of X project now. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> I thought you said they could never be in charge of something. Well, you know, they just, uh, uh, they just really proved themselves. You're like, no, no, they didn't. You just ran out of talent. <laughs> well, so I spent, um, my military time was spent, uh, divided between active duty and the reserve, uh, guard system, which the reserves and guard for, for the, are effectively the same thing. There's, there's differences in federal and state, but as far as, um, as far as any listeners concerned, active duty versus reserves, uh, I'll use the term guard and reserves interchangeably because right here it's not, uh, the differences aren't very relevant. Um, but when you have in a, a guard structure or a reserve structure, it's a, a series of full-time officers and NCOs who have to make things work Monday through Friday and then drill happens on the weekends. But you have the same deadbeats who they can't fire them because to be fired from the military, you essentially have to steal something beat your wife or do drugs. Um, so as long as they don't do those three things, they can't fire them. So you have a, a captain who's completely incompetent. Um, so they'll, they'll shove them off to some admin position. They'll, they'll put them in a staff position for time. And then what happens is you wind up with a recruitment uh, lag and you don't have any captains to take over a company command again. And you, you need a company commander. So you bring him back out of the dust, you dust him off and you stick him back in there and he'll run that company into the ground. Um, you know, the, they'll fail inspections and, and whatnot and people aren't getting their proper training. So they'll, they'll move him back into a staff position a year later, put a competent captain in the captain will get that company running again. And then a year or two goes by that captain either leaves the military cause he's valuable or they promote him somewhere else and they need a company commander again. So they dust off the same captain who, who's been a captain for 10 years. He should have been promoted to major or something else, but they don't dare promote him cause he's too incompetent. But they don't get rid of them because when they need a, a warm body to occupy a position, they put them back in place. And these same losers rotate around, and some of them get a career out of this where they'll actually make it to lieutenant colonel or colonel because enough time goes by that they can't justify not promoting them. So they promote them, and they just they just exist, and they don't screw up bad enough to be fired, but they can never get rid of them. Yeah, so I guess the. Uh, the direct relevance to starting a business is as a first cut, just a, uh, an easy heuristic to use. Just finding other Wi-Fi people is a great filter because guess where they're coming from? These big companies, government, et cetera, who can't compensate them appropriately. They're, they're way too valuable to be there. And so they're exiting the system just like going vault, right? Um, and so <laughs> at the same time that you're seeing these, these corporations that are just zombies and just cannibalizing their, their brand and their market share, and just just surviving on sheer momentum and altitude, uh, the, <laughs> or at least sacrificing all their momentum and altitude and just spending on their bank accounts, all the talent is leaving. And you can really capitalize on that by finding these other people who, who are motivated. And not only that, but take a lot of personal responsibility and, um, and deliver a lot of value and have, as a result, decided to go into the Wi-Fi economy. Yeah. And, you know, this may seem counterintuitive at first, but let me get through the whole bit. Um, a lot of people are starting their Wi-Fi economy or their Wi-Fi business while 
not just working for somebody else, but actively at their job. Because so many of our jobs now, you have to work 40 hours to get your paycheck, but the job can be done in 10 hours. So somebody is going to sit there, get their actual work done in the first 10 hours of the week. And the next 30 hours, they're just at their desk on company time working their Wi-Fi business. And you go, well, that's, that's theft. That's theft of time, whatever. It's like, no, they're not being paid for the hours they work. They're, they're being told to work a minimal amount of hours because corporations still haven't figured out that, you know, you don't have to do 40 hours of work to get the work done. So they're taking advantage of the system they're in to build their business. That's a smart person. If they can do a 40 hour a week job and start a business in the same 40 hours, that's a person who knows how to utilize time. And whether you employ them or simply use their service, their Wi-Fi service, um, you know, it's, it's a valuable person. So what, look for those double dippers. A lot of these people are actually tell you they work three full-time jobs from home because the 40 hours of work they need to do can be done in five to 10 hours. So why not get three full-time paychecks for it? Um, people who are smart enough to figure that out are people who you want to, uh, you want to work with because they can get jobs done quickly. <laughs> it's, uh, you get kind of reverse sticker shock when you, um, when you exit the wage system and go out and land your first contract or something under your own, under your own name, uh, because then you start to realize what people are actually willing to pay for value. <laughs> and so it's very, I remember when I first, when I first took the first consulting gig and I was, you know, moonlighting. And uh, I realized I was making something like 15 times my hourly wage <laughs> consulting. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. very, very common. Yeah. Well, that's when I realized I could do the manual labor of my writing while working for the government and then continue to make money off of that writing. Um, it made me realize that, you know, I don't have to work for the government anymore. I could just keep doing this. And in a given day, you know, I, I've gotten myself to the point where I can spend three hours a day on a computer and granted it's seven days a week, but I don't like to spend any more than three hours a day on a computer. So I don't. Um, and that's how I got my Wi-Fi stuff structured. Now I had to do a lot more than that at the beginning end of it, but now I've got things moving to where I can do three hours of work a day and then be on with my life to go do my, uh, my IRL businesses. Um, cause personally I need some labor in my life. Um, just to, to stay sane. But, um, that's actually kind of an abnormal thing, but, um, I was able to, to leverage my position in the government while I was on their hourly wage to build my businesses out and then leave. So you know, I was very, very underutilized where I was and rather than try to build up, a get more recognition in my 40 hour a week job. I just left but I can never go back now. And that's what happens is you, you realize your, your worth when people are paying you for what you can do. Um, that's why it's so recommended to get started. That's the nice thing about a Wi-Fi job versus uh, an IRL job and in real life job is that the Wi-Fi can be done anywhere, whether it's at your current job or while you're on vacation, while you're sitting on a plane, you can do it anywhere. So it's one of the things that makes it so appeasing. And okay. I was going to say, you know, I bounce back and forth between real life jobs and, and Wi-Fi jobs because real life jobs are great. Somebody has to do the actual work and there's no reason why you can't make money doing it. So I'm never going to say one's better than the other. I, I have revenue streams in both the real world and the, the digital world. Uh, the digital world makes me more money, but there's more mental and emotional satisfaction with real life work because it's tangible. Um, but some people just aren't meant for Wi-Fi 
work. Some people are meant to be physical laborers and they're, they're real craftsmen and tradesmen. And there's, there's a lot of money to be made in that space. So um, don't be turned off just because we're called Wi-Fi pioneers. Don't be turned off by the idea of doing uh, physical work or real life work. Um, it's still scalable, not as scalable, but you can still make a huge amount of money and scale those, those jobs. So don't be afraid to do those as your own business. Yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast, you've, already opted into something important, right? You've already made a decision to invest some of your time to make your life better. And if you're concerned about taking the leap, just understand that the entire system you've participated in so far from preschool has preconditioned you to be terrified and incapable of going out on your own. But guess what? Humans have lived and survived and thrived in incredibly hostile environments for thousands of years, if not longer. And <laughs> and you're perfect. It's perfectly within your genes to do it, right? Uh, you just have to try, and you just have to stick with it, and and not get discouraged. But the biggest barrier is just the psychological one that the that the situation situation, the school system and the corporate system has ingrained in you to not even try. So just try, just get started. Um, but I, I guess a relevant question would be: Is it better to? Uh, start with something uh, small that doesn't scale so you can escape the, you know, the, the, the plantation uh, or should you stay on the plantation while you do a side hustle that scales rapidly? Just uh, you're not going to see results on it for, for a while. Um, well, it's trade-offs, right? There's no right answer. There's trade-offs. Um, you can start a side hustle while working for your corporate, your, your corporate job, your W2 job. But sometimes the trap, the mental trap is people think, well, it's a side hustle. So they always treat it like a side hustle. Um, you'll see people who, whether they're putting themselves out on Fiverr to do a job and just picking up the occasional bit of money or like an auto mechanic that starts fixing cars at home after work for an hour or two, but never takes the leap to become his own business. Um, you know, farmers who will have they'll have 10 acres of or 20 acres of land and they'll they'll raise sheep but they'll never raise enough sheep to make money and it's oh it's just a hobby i don't want to make money and that that's an out it's a mental trap so sometimes your side hustle keeps you in a mindset of it's a side hustle it's not a real job um whereas when you you go full bore into something you quit your job and you say i'm going to do this um new enterprise you have no safety net and for some people that forces them to be successful, but other people without the safety net, they can't keep it up long enough to be successful. And then they fail and get discouraged. So it really comes down to uh, trade-offs. Um, if you keep the mindset correct, you can work your full-time job and build your side hustle till it's no longer a side hustle. And it's probably better not to use the word side hustle. It's probably better to tell yourself your new business because then you're never thinking of it as a side, but you're thinking of it as a path to your full-time uh, independence. The other uh, relevant point I'd make is that if you're talking about high growth businesses, and I've been involved in a few, you just have to understand that there's a high failure rate uh, just, just from the outset. It's just a reality. Even if you have a great team, um, even if you have a great opportunity, there's just a tremendous amount of variability that's not directly within or indirectly within your control. And so you have to be ready to endure some of those setbacks uh, and, Cash flow constraints are a real issue, right? Like I've seen, I've seen really talented people take twenty years to get going because they had one major setback that cost them five or ten years, and then it takes another five or ten years to actually deliver on the on the winner, right? Um, and so, just keep that in mind when you're planning out 
what a reasonable time frame is for your particular lifestyle. If you've got kids, if you've got you know a lot of existing uh, um, cash flow commitments, that's <laughs> that that can factor in very heavily. And it, you said it exactly right. It's just trade offs. There's no one better than the other. It's that you you have to kind of consider the entire the, the entire piece, right? But uh, um, one of the things that may not stick out to you right away until you actually jump is that. Uh, all the other processes necessary to run your life, for example, um, mortgages, <laughs> uh, yeah. depend heavily on this WT system. And they cannot, there's just so many of them that cannot even process what what a perfectly good credit looks like, right? So if I saw somebody who's who's starting multiple businesses, very capable of turning those businesses profitable, uh, that that looks like a great credit to me versus a W two employee who's completely dependent on one business surviving. And if that that business doesn't survive, where is their other cash flow coming from? I have no idea. Like, are they going to get another job soon, or are they going to be unemployed for six to twelve months? Uh, and yeah. yet the system benefits that W two employee. It's almost like the entire system is built to keep you on the plantation. So just keep that in mind. Manage those risks ahead of time, and you'll be fine. Yeah, that's something I'm glad you actually brought up the mortgage thing, because uh, I experienced that when I left my government job and started my my first or it wasn't my first, but my first independent and truly successful business. Um, I did so realizing that even though I'd make a year's pay in three to four months, I would not qualify for a loan for at least two years because I had to show two years of successfully running uh, this business and bringing in money. And even though I could point and go, Hey, I just made more in the last four months than I did in the, the year prior. It didn't matter. So they mortgages and bankers are, are bad. They've got a spreadsheet in front of them and it says, if X, then Y, if Y, then Z, there's no variation to it. And we could talk about how it's a stupid system all day long, just because you have, you've had a W2 job for the last two years. Doesn't mean you'll have one for the next 30 Certainly doesn't mean that, but they're basing the next 30 years of of payments based off of the last two years. And if the last two years is a brand new job, a brand new business, yeah, good luck with that. And on that, if you reinvest your profits back into the business, that's a loss. doesn't matter that you took a hundred thousand in profit and improved your business and bought a new store or bought new equipment or whatever. That's a loss. So that's something to think about is, you know, you, you invest in your business to bring your tax liability down, but that means that you're now running at a loss. So that's a whole nother year that you'll not qualify for a loan. So just understand what you're putting yourself into that, um, you know, buy your house beforehand, buy your car beforehand, buy anything that you're going to do with a loan. Um, do that before you quit your W2 job because, and you know, of course, what's the unspoken part of that is make sure that you're when you quit your W-2 job, that you're confident in your business's ability to continue to pay your, your debts. Don't go into debt if you're uncertain. I'm just going <laughs> to throw that and, out there. Yeah. And uh, I, we'll, we'll get more into some of the details along this, uh, along the path that, that make this easier. You know, for example, um, hiring spouses and things like that. Like there, there are plenty of perfectly legitimate decisions you can make as an early business owner that, that help you navigate that transition better. Um, but yeah, great point. It's, you just have to understand that when you start a business, you're going to get lots of great tax write-offs right away. And the great thing is, you know, you're paying less taxes, but at the same time, the bankers are going to punish you for it. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But the, the other, the other interesting point about the high growth scalable business versus the, you know, immediate cash flow kind of lifestyle Wi-Fi business is that 
um, if you have a scalable business, it may, and it's, and it's doing really well, it may not immediately translate into something bankable too, right? So let's say you have, let's say you're, uh, you're an owner of a company that's probably valued at somewhere like 30 or 40 million. Um, unless that company is publicly traded, your banker might just look at you and like, and be like, I care about your W2, bro. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. you're like, what? I can, I can sell my company and buy this house 30 times over in cash. And, and you're telling me that I'm not a good credit. Um, okay, fine. All right. And, and the other thing is when you start a, a scalable business, you're purposefully taking a low salary, right? And your other, and your investors are going to expect you to take a low salary. Uh, they don't want you perfectly happy and fat, dumb and happy, right? They want you, they want you working your butt off to deliver the exit, the exit liquidity event, you know, in five to 10 years. And oh, yeah. so, yeah, it's, if uh, so it's, it's going to look bad to the bankers. Yeah, because if you're starting up a new business in um, home construction, okay, and and you need the you know the capital for for equipment and stuff, and I'm putting up that capital. I don't expect you to be driving a brand new car, and you know I'm putting up that money because I'm I'm expecting a return on my investment. And what I want to see is if I if I hand you a hundred thousand dollars, I want to see you buy a hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment with it, not uh, you know, a brand new Cadillac for you and your wife to cruise around in. You know that's. So yeah, I'm expecting you to eat beans and rice while I give you money until you start making that money back and repaying me with interest. That's the idea of the investing in you. So, you know, understand that if you're taking investor money, you know, that's, you got to treat it like it's their money. You got to treat it like, you know, it's worth more than it is because people are putting their trust in you. You, you don't just turn around and start you know, buying yourself luxury items on their dollar. It's uh, immoral to say the best. Yeah, piece. definitely. So, so when you're starting that business, you're going to be taking a low salary. And of course you're going to have a low W2 that's, that's drastically understating what your earning potential is. Right. So if you're, if you in two years build a $30 million business, in some sense, you could say your compensation was, you know, not, not a compounded basis, but just a straight average is 15 million a year. Right. And yet your W2 yeah. could say 80,000 a year. Uh, and, and the banker doesn't, you know, he's, He's basically a glorified government employee. Uh, he's just an overpaid government employee. He's not going to care. Yeah, yeah. He's an orangutan, you know, banging a bell. You know, it, again, it's they look at that spreadsheet, and there's nothing on their spreadsheet that talks about value of business and scalability of a business you're making. It just W two. What does your tax return say? And that's all they work on. They they can't operate outside of that. Um, now, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole today, but if cryptocurrencies ever gain um, the credibility that they claim they have and the growth potential that they claim they have, this could potentially solve that problem. Um, but that's a, that's a multi-hour discussion on its own um, talking about the risks and potential, you know, for all the fanatics and all the anti-crypto fanatics, there's potential in that space, but it's not there yet. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now because that's a couple hour conversation on its own that we will get to in future episodes. Um, but I'd like to jump back. You mentioned schools and how it trains us. I know that was like 10 minutes ago, but um, I think this is really important to understand your own mental limitations with starting. Um, for whatever the history of the, the public education system is, um, what it's turned into, you know, whatever it was meant to be, uh, you know, whatever. What it currently is, is a system that uh, you have to ask permission for everything. 
You have to ask permission to go pee. You have to ask permission to answer a question correctly. You know the answer, but you still have to ask the teacher, you know, can I tell you the right answer that you're, you're demanding that I know? Everything is permission-based, and it really stifles the independence of, of potential entrepreneurs because now you get into this space of, all right, I want to go start a business. What's the first thing you do? You ask your friends and family, is it feasible? Right? You're basically asking them permission. Even if you tell them, hey, I want to start this online business where I build websites for people, you're telling them because you're asking their permission, hey, can I succeed in this or am I stupid for doing it? Instead of just doing it and turning around saying, oh, by the way, now I've got this, this uh, website design business where I make $1,000 a month and I'm going to grow it. Like, no, you're asking for permission for everything. And you know, you go to a corporation, you're asking for a job, you're asking for a pay raise, you're asking for a salary. You're never, you're never telling people I'm worth this, pay me for it. And that's, that's what the Wi-Fi economy and, and, you know, to a large scale, what, what being a business owner in general is, is you're telling the world I'm worth this much for this job. You pay me for it and you'll get your money's worth. Yeah. It, people may disagree with this, but I'm of the opinion that 90% plus of small kids possess the personality traits necessary to start and run a business. I mean, just sit and watch them, right? Watch them, how they approach life, how they learn things, how they try and fail and how they manage risk and things like that. It's, I'm like, that's the exact same thing I do every single day. It's just the only difference is I've got a little more wisdom. I've been burned a few times and uh, I, you know, developed some skills that people are willing to pay for. That's it. You know how long that takes? Not long. <laughs> I I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if, as this Wi-Fi thing takes off, if you've got 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds running million-dollar businesses, wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Oh, yeah. Um, just, I mean, we, we already see the outliers of that happening. Most of that's in the social media space. But like before crypto took its major crashes, there were teenagers making millions trading cryptocurrencies and NFTs and other things because they recognized what the space was and how to move product. Um, now I don't know what they're doing since crypto's you know, had a ninety percent you know uh, value crash in the last year, uh, but the potential was there. They showed they demonstrated their potential that in a bull market they can move product online. That type of knowledge doesn't go away just because you lost money. That you know you, you recalibrate your brain to realize what your mistakes were and you move on to the next thing. Those kids, I guarantee, you know, within the next year or two, will be, be moving product again online. They'll be doing something. Um, you know, it just comes down to if you if you're not doing the, the physical work yourself, you can move the physical work your own. You can move the products online. You can move the services online. You can get the the people who need product or service and you're just connecting these lines and the internet allows you to do that across the globe. And, you know, if you give kids enough, enough space to experiment on the internet, they'll absolutely do it. Absolutely. And I think you're even seeing like, uh, especially, you know, some of the kids with mild autism and stuff who aren't, aren't dead set on going to school every day uh, for the socialization, you know, they live in the online world. They love the online world and, they can immediately recognize some of these things. Plus the, you know, the um, hyper focus that they demonstrate, they can quickly jump to the forefront in terms of expertise in, in a particular field, especially one that doesn't require active participation. So you could say like, uh, there's this, there's this one kid a few years ago. I saw, I want to say it was like 12 or 14 years old, cutting, um, cutting tape of college football games and analyzing them and was doing it incredibly well. Right. Uh, Whereas, you know, if you, if you needed a skill where, I don't know if you were like, if you were teaching combat skills, probably need some real life experience, but uh, there are other things where the, the, the 
the field is wide open for somebody to come in who's just got some time and interest and can jump into this stuff. And very quickly, I think if, if people don't jump into the Wi-Fi world, um, they could very quickly become obsolete because they will be 30 years behind somebody else who, who made the jump when they were 10 years old. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the autism part of it too, because, um, like, so social media, we know for 90% of the people out there, it's, it's a dumpster fire and it's creating anxiety and, and a lot of depression and other issues, right? Social media is what you make of it. And it can definitely be used towards, towards evil and to just uh, evil force in your own life. But the flip side of that is you can use it. Um, you, you can really use it to improve your life. So Twitter, I used Twitter in a read only capacity up until this podcast. And then I decided, you know, it's time to actually, you're not going to get listeners if you don't engage in the social media space. But prior to my engagement for about a year, I was read only on Twitter. And I just, I followed about 50 people whose content was, was good. Um, away from the politics, away from the drama, away from the celebrities. And uh, that's when I found, um, and I've shared with you the, they call it the bow tie jungle, right? It's just, it's a group of a couple hundred people that are, most of them are probably 70, 80% of them are autistic and they just hyper-focus on one thing. I mean, you got a guy who's um, all fitness. You got another guy who's vitamins, another guy who, um, you know, all about magnesium, but he goes down uh, the rabbit hole of all how basically how supplementation and vitamins can uh, improve your life. And there's this running joke there of like, you know, what did you do to lose all that weight and become healthy? It's like, oh, I, I followed a cartoon. Uh, I followed a cartoon on the bird app. Like we've, we're reaching a point now where autistic cartoon characters on Twitter have more credibility than doctors because doctors are just regurgitating the same nonsense. Uh, you know, like this, they're regurgitating the same nutrition fallacies of 30, 40 years ago. Whereas you follow these cartoons on Twitter and you're seeing the, the, the latest up-to-date studies that are being published month after month about which foods do what for you. And you just realize that like the medical system is becoming obsolete. And, and it, it's such a weird thing to say, even as I, you know, as I try to explain it, that you've got cartoon autists on Twitter who are more credible than PhD doctors. That's not a sentence that should, should ever be spoken out loud. And yet it's becoming more and more true as we move into the 2020s. So wrap your brain around that. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up the social media thing. And, and I have to admit that I missed Twitter for quite a while. I just didn't get it. Cause I, I uh, wrote it off when I saw what you call the dumpster fire. Uh, and then once you find that little nugget of, of value in there and you realize how much, how much value is hidden in it, uh, there's no going back. Um, so I think one of the most relevant points we can make for an early uh, a person early in this process is obviously make the observation that the quality of your network is the primary determining factor that translates your talent and motivation and creativity into results. Obviously your, the value of your network depends on whether it's relevant to what you're capable of doing and where your interests are. Uh, and so the key is tapping into some, some node somewhere that, that turns that network into massive value. And the first thing you can do obviously is, is tune into the jungle somewhere, um, a few bow tight accounts and it, it's immediately obvious how much value there is in, in those kinds of, those kinds of people. But as soon as you get a foothold in that kind of environment, that's all you need. Everything else just takes off. So keep looking for it until you find it and, and it'll change your life drastically. And not only because, you know, you're, 
you're tapping into their network as well, right? All of this information is flowing between nodes. It's an amazing network diagram, but um, good people are really good at vetting other good people, right? And so uh, all you need to find is one or two people and you now have access to the wisdom of their entire network. Uh, so it's, it very quickly turns into a situation where you might know a thousand people and literally two people um, contribute 99% of the professional value to your life. <laughs> yeah. And, and in today's space, it's two people who you've never met and never had a conversation with. That's what's, that's the utility of social media when used to your advantage versus when, versus using it as a gossip dumpster fire. Yeah, absolutely. And isn't it crazy how quickly you can sense somebody's capability and such in just their, a couple of their Twitter posts. You can, you can hear it. You can smell it. It's there. Yeah. You know, and that's, I guess, I mean, this is kind of a forced segue, but um, people don't know how to think anymore. So you're seeing a lot of binary thinking coming out and um, a lot of scanning for reasons to, to, to dismiss people outright uh, when you have your challenges, your views challenged. Um, you know, sometimes people are just stupid and there's no reason to follow them or listen to them, but um we get into this binary mindset. And I think that has a lot to do with American politics of Democrat versus Republican. And over the last 60 years, it's become well, Democrats believe a and Republicans believe B and there's no crossover. It's either all or nothing. So it's binary thinking. And there's no, there's never an option C there's never an in between. So you have to break yourself of that binary mindset that, well, if you believe a, then, you know, it must be B and, that, and that's it. You got to get out of that binary mindset and you have to understand too, that, you're never going to agree with everybody all the time. So it's good. It's not that, that you need to be following people who are morally opposed to you, but when somebody comes out and challenges your view on fitness or nutrition or something, if they're right about 90% of the other topics, they could be wrong about this, or you could be wrong. Always leave open that option, the possibility that you're wrong or your information's out of date. So don't just dismiss people. Like The, the thing I hate seeing the most is uh, the sentence, tells you all you need to know. It's like, nah, that tells me all I want to know to stop listening to you. It could be something good. You know, if you're defending pedophiles, I'm certainly not going to listen to anything else you have to say. So at the extremes, that sentence makes sense, tells me all I need to know. But more often than not, if somebody says something like, well, eating more meat is actually good for you. And it's like, well, that just tells me all I need to know. Well, no, it doesn't. It tells me that, that he's going against medical establishment. Maybe he has a reason for it or maybe he's wrong. But I'll give him a benefit of the doubt since he's right about all his fitness things or all his other posts. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and actually listen to what you have to say rather than looking for a cheap reason to discount you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so I'm just kind of pulling together the threads of the conversation that we've had so far and just thinking about the relevance to somebody who's, you know, early in this process. Um, I think that's probably who would most benefit from what we've been talking about today. You know, people who are well-versed in the jungle this stuff is probably all pretty obvious to them. But uh, if I were just starting this process, uh, basically can sum it up as this, uh, make the jump, the water's warm. And in fact, it gets better every single day and you will be blown away at how many years of your life you wasted in the system. Uh, yeah, um, manage your uh, really, risks and you'll be fine. You, and you, you, the key words there, early in the process. It's not just that you personally are early in the process. It's that the Wi-Fi economy, we are still early in the process. The internet's been around for you know almost 30 years now, and yet we're still at the beginning phases of it. Um, 
you know, you're looking at accounts that, you know, that have a million followers and their Wi-Fi business might be making them hundred thousand to a million dollars a month at the top end of it. And you're going, well, how am I ever going to compete in that space? Understand that despite the fact that there's people at the top making a massive amounts of money, we're still early in this space. You know, if you're an author, ebooks have only been around for a few years. The independent author space has only really been, I mean, technically about 10 years, but realistically only about five years have people been making money as independent authors uh, on the ebook space. If you have a, a writing talent, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, you're early to the game. You can compete in this. Every one of these Wi-Fi niches that's making massive amounts of money, it's true. Only the top 1% are making, you know, really livable wages but you only need to find one niche to put yourself in the top 1%. And to put yourself in the top 10% of any niche really just means consistency over three to six months. It doesn't take much to be in the top 10%. Closing the gap to the top 1%, you've got to really be good at it. You only got to pick one niche of thousands of online niches to get good at. And we're all early to this game. Uh, the podcast space for the fact, even though there's a million podcasts out there, we're all still early to this space. You know, 20 years from now, cable news is gone. Cable dies with the last boomer and it's going to be all podcasts of some sort. So we're all early to the space still. There's still room for all of us to grow. There's so much money to be shared on the internet. You only need a small piece of it. So don't be discouraged and think that you're late to the party. You are still early to this game. <laughs> That's man. You know that uh, people massively underestimate how much the internet is increasing the size of the pie. The real economic growth here is in just, unfathomable people think that you know if there's a trend coming and they're and they're not one of the first people they know into it they've missed it kind of like i don't know if you're thinking about housing boom and bus very different here this is this is a multi-century boom um and uh and you know we haven't even brought you know most of africa on here we haven't even all this stuff there's there's it's it's a network effect the more people participating the more value there is to be shared it's not divvying up the pie and if there's more people, there's less value that each person gets. No, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's a network effect. It compounds for each new person that comes and contributes value. So just get started. And that's, that's a big reason why we, you know, we use this name Wi-Fi pioneer. There are people who are quite a bit further ahead of us on this. Yeah, definitely. But when you consider the entire population, this is an entirely new country that's being formed, uh, that you can, that you can find your particular, you know, your particular paradise in. And, uh, and don't let the fact that it seems like, feels like there are people way ahead of you that mean that you missed it. You didn't miss it. It's very early. Just get started. Yeah. I mean, if you consider that the Industrial Revolution started in the 1800s, and you can argue, you know, where, but let's say roughly the 1850s when railroads started coming out was probably the big, big pusher of it, steam engines. Um, so 1850, give or take. The Industrial Revolution didn't end until about 1950. And then we started moving into a technological revolution after that. So you had a hundred year industrial revolution. And then we went into this technology based revolution. And now we've got the internet. I mean, it's going to be going on for at least a hundred years um, as it transitions. And you're still so early to the game. Uh, don't be, as like you said, don't be discouraged. You can absolutely carve out your niche of, of this massive, massive pie. Yeah, your descendants will thank you. Just imagine 50 years from now what compounded gains look like and how drastically different their lives will be compared to the people you see watching Netflix all day. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we haven't even talked about how generational wealth might look in the Internet space. But, you know, the 
America got away from generational wealth uh, around the Industrial Revolution. You know, people were able to leave the the farms. The farms used to be how you pass generational wealth. You pass your property and your your cattle and your livestock onto your son. Your son would pass it on to his son. Or you know, if you have daughters, you you bring a man. You'd marry her and a man into the family and pass it to him. But you were never starting from zero. We got into the Industrial Revolution. Everybody moved into the cities. And every generation since has started at zero. You left your parents' house and bought your own house. You had to get your own career. You didn't take any of your father's wealth with you. And he didn't take any of his father's wealth. Um, you know, now, of course, we've got, you know, across both genders, we got got wealth going. So you're not taken from your mother or your father. Most of us have divorced parents or will have divorced parents. So the generational wealth is fracturing all over the place. If you can get into this Wi-Fi space and start building something, you can pass it on to your kids when they're 10 or 12 years old. Imagine, you know, pass, passing the knowledge of your Wi-Fi business to your kids and they're, they're learning in the space as it adapts. So it's not just that you're passing on a Wi-Fi business. They're learning the technology at an early age so that it offloads one kids, kids learn technology faster than adults. So you don't have to keep up with the space as much. And before they're even out of high school, they're able to run a successful online business and expand it. I mean, this is going to do wonders for generational wealth. I really can't even, you know, I actually need time to really think about that. Cause it just occurred to me as we were talking, the implications of that. Yeah. And, and allowing your kids to spend more of their lives doing highly, highly productive, valuable things instead of, you know, waste time jobs. I spent a lot of my life in really low value jobs where I was just, <laughs> I was just a corporate slave, you know, pulling a handle, right? Yeah. Uh, I was capable of way more than that. And I had to sacrifice a lot of my life to escape that dynamic. Um, but if you can get a kid started on something really valuable early in life, yeah, granted, there are going to be some, some very important decisions you have to make as a parent about how to teach them good values and not have them be a spoiled brat. But at very least, you can create real wealth and improve standards of living and and be in control of the kind of life you want to live. Make those decisions consciously instead of having your life being forced upon you because you started off on the plantation and you have to spend 30 years trying to escape. Yeah, you know, that's the barriers to, to wealth and the barriers of generational wealth are going to be removed through this process. That's for sure. And, um, I actually do I want to talk about that on another podcast. We'll get really in depth about barriers to wealth uh, in the financial world and, and stuff. But that's uh, that could be a pretty deep topic on its own. But bottom line is that we're getting we're working around those barriers and nobody's going to be able to put them in place fast enough that the Internet's going to grow too fast for them to really hold you back. Yeah, sounds good. I do have to get running. Okay. So, all right. We're going to pause it here. Thank you for listening in on our first episode. A reminder that nothing we have said here today is to be considered financial advice. It is just our opinion. We would like to hear your opinion about the show and the topics we've covered and things you'd like to hear in the future. Remember, nobody's going to save you. It's up to you to save yourself.